Welcome to How Healthcare Happens. My name's Bryn Kentish. This is a brand new podcast from Cardiff and Vale UHB, showing you all the things that you never knew the NHS did. In this week's episode, we talk to David Thomas. David is a biomedical scientist in the oral pathology labs at the University Dental Hospital. David and I discussed something that I always knew was a big problem in healthcare, but I never really understood much more about it than that, and that is bacteria. David and his colleagues represent the thin line between us being healthy and a world where infectious diseases are the number one cause of death. He has a really great way of explaining things, so it's quite a complex topic, as you can imagine, but the way David explains it, I think, was great. He throws in a couple of fantastic film references in there so keep an eye out for them and take heed of the lessons that we can all learn I think from David and how we can help as individuals fight the fight against antimicrobial resistance. All that and more coming up. Today's guest is David Thomas. He's a specialist biomedical scientist in oral pathology based at the University Dental Hospital and the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff. Welcome, David. Hello there. Hi, David. Can you tell me a bit about your role to start with? What is a biomedical scientist? What do you do? Biomedical scientists work in hospitals, primarily in the labs. So whenever you hear a doctor saying, we've done a test and it's gone to the lab, So they might have taken some blood, a swab, or any sort of sample from you. The person in the labs, there are many different people, but the majority of the people working there are biomedical scientists. So those are the people who will be conducting the laboratory tests on the sample and reporting the results to the doctors. Just as there's many different types of consultants and specialist nurses, I assume there's probably lots of different types of biomedical scientists? There's lots of different specialities within biomedical science. So in general, you've got the blood scientists, so those those, um, specialities that are looking at the blood, so blood grouping, etc., making sure you have the right bloods delivered to surgeries and to clinics. People then looking at the biochemistry of the blood, looking at chemicals in the blood, helping to diagnose disease and monitor diseases like diabetes, for example. Mm-hmm. There's other people looking at the immune system and looking at the diseases that are involved in the immune system. There are other biomedical scientists that work in histology labs. So those are people that deal with whenever you have a biopsy taken, they prepare the tissue to be looked under the microscope. So pathologists can look at tissue and determine whether there's any diseases going on there like cancer and then in my field um, microbiology there are many different sub-disciplines within that field as well right so there's virology so there's specialist labs that look at viruses there's parasitology there's mycology so labs that look at funguses and yeast and then there's my specialty bacteriology so the lab that looks at bacteria and infectious bacteria organisms like, like that so there's many and i'm sure i've missed out some (laughs) as well in that list yeah and more (laughs) yeah it's it's quite incredible that there's so many members of staff in the hospital that patients would never really come face to face with and probably don't know a lot about but it strikes me that the work that the nhs does wouldn't function without this scientific backbone there's a figure that's banding about in our profession 80 percent of the decisions made by doctors are based on laboratory testing I think that's probably a lot more than that when you consider how much laboratory testing is involved in um, maintaining conditions like diabetes, for example, or somebody will have a lot of blood tests done during the course of their treatment. 
a lot of the work goes goes on behind closed doors but it's really important for patient treatment yeah and innovation in healthcare as well because i can't imagine that things would progress without yeah the of research course that you guys do obviously the main research or the main innovations recently has been in the genomics field where we're starting looking at the genome of individual patients mm. here in wales there's the hundred genome project that i'm aware of fascinating i do hope to actually interview someone from the hundred genome project maybe in a later episode but yeah that'd be very interesting yeah <laughs> but let's go back to your yeah. speciality which is as you said bacteria the extent of my knowledge around bacteria is that they make you ill or some of them at least make you ill indeed but yeah. i don't really know much more than that so can you kind of explain what are bacteria people may know that our bodies human bodies are made up of a lot of individual parcels that we call cells yes there's lots of cells in the human body so they're specialist skin cells liver cells blood cells etc bacteria are unicellular so an individual bacterium is just made up of one cell it's microscopic, so you can't see them by the naked eye. You need a microscope to see them. And bacteria are everywhere in in the world, Yeah. in the environment. They're on the table in front of me. They're on the floor. They're on the doorknob. They're in the soil. They're in the air. They're everywhere. And they exist everywhere. So you've got lakes, which are boiling 100 degrees Celsius with bacteria in. Deep under the soil, there's bacteria. Deep in the ocean, there's bacteria. High up in the air, there's bacteria. Uh, you even have bacteria uh, sometimes growing on radioactive nuclear reactors, you know. My old professor in university used to tell me that uh, whatever life can exist, it will exist. And it's usually in the form of bacteria. Mm -hmm. They're fundamentally different to the cells of our body in a number of different ways yeah. which makes it advantageous for us so you can use things like antibiotics that target these differences so they can kill bacteria but leave our cells alone so there's quite a number of bacteria living on the human body all the time mm -hmm. the main sites are on the skin especially the armpit and the groin and mm -hmm. areas like that the oral cavity is many many different bacteria within the oral cavity and then the primary site where you find the bacteria in the human body is the is the gut, the small and large intestine. We're both sitting here now with lots of bacteria in our bodies, but we're both perfectly healthy. It's a revelation recently that we've discovered that the bacteria on our human body, not only are they not causing us any harm, some of them are actually beneficial mm -hmm. for us. There's lots of different examples of that. There's been studies showing that when a person is stressed, their gut microbiota changes as a result of the stress. There's been other studies linking the microbiota in the gut with obesity. So they've done some studies in mice where they've gotten mice which are germ-free, which are sterile, mm -hmm. and they've put the microbiota of a thin mouse in one and the microbiota of a fat mouse in another, and then fed them both the same diet. The mouse with the microbiota from the fat mouse just put on more weight. Right. <laughs> so you can see that how the microbiota is key of how we digest our food yeah that's been shown as well in humans there's been cases where people getting treated for clostridioides difficile disease they get a fecal transplant from a close member of the family and it's been shown that people who get that have started to put on weight because they've got the microbiota from an obese person it's been shown that in breast milk, there are things that the baby can't digest, mm -hmm. but they're there specifically for the gut microbiota to become established. You can see how long this symbiotic relationship between us and bugs has, has been. Bugs in our gut produce vitamins that we do not produce, like vitamin K. 
they obviously are there as a natural shield to other pathogenic organisms. So if you think about it, a pathogen is trying to get into your body, but the house is full because there's bacteria everywhere and it can't get a foothold. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of different examples currently in the literature showing the the benefits of the microbiome as well and obviously when it gets unbalanced or there's a shift it can cause some diseases like asthma and inflammatory bowel diseases and stuff like that that is fascinating we've established that we're full of bacteria anyway but there are some types of bacteria that if you were to ingest them then you are likely to contract some sort of disease i'm thinking like e coli that sort of thing some types of e coli salmonella yeah campylobacter yeah neisseria gonorrhea sexually transmitted diseases and so forth those are what we would call maybe obligate pathogens mm-hmm. There are other types of pathogens that we call opportunistic. So these are the bacteria that live on us normally, not causing us any harm, but given the opportunity, can cause disease. So a classic example of that would be Staphylococcus aureus. It lives on our skin quite harmlessly, but if we have a cut or something, then when the Staphylococcus aureus gets into the cut, it starts to cause disease and it starts to cause infection. Right. And there are lots of examples of that where we have endogenous infections happening in the body. And that happens a lot in healthcare. A lot of the advances of healthcare over the years, intensive care treatments like lines being put in for drips, etc., catheterization, all make the human body susceptible to opportunistic infections. And so it's a big problem in hospitals. Yeah. And that usually happens with endogenous bacteria on the body. Is that what we would call a hospital acquired infection? Yeah, it will yeah. it will be. So it's either you either acquired it from yourself or from the environment within the environment. hospital. With other people. Within the uh, other yeah. people or surfaces within the hospital as well. So we've treated bacteria with antibiotics, mm-hmm. which you've mentioned very briefly. Can you explain how they work? So antibiotics are chemicals. Yeah. Chemicals have a unique three-dimensional shape. And how antibiotics work, they encounter a bacteria. And as I mentioned previously, there are certain things that a bacterial cell has that a, a human cell in our body doesn't have. And there are a number of examples. For example, bacteria have what they call a cell wall, and our cells do not. Right. A cell wall is something on the outside of the bacteria that gives it rigidity and strength to exist within the environment. What an antibiotic would do, it will come in and bind specifically to a bacterial structure due to its shape. So, for example, we could be two different bacteria, but we're two different bacteria because we have a different shaped face. Mm -hmm. So if an antibiotic were to come into the room now, it it could bind specifically to my face because it's shaped that way. And as a result, it binds to my face, I can't breathe and I die. But you don't because your face is a different shape. It would just bounce off me. and It just doesn't bind tightly and you'll be fine. So that's in in essence what happens with an antibiotic. It comes into the bacterial cell, it binds to something, and that binding inhibits the function of whatever it's just bound to. And that results in either the cell dying or at the very least not dividing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, everybody's heard of maybe the antibiotic called penicillin. Yes. Penicillin acts on the cell wall of bacteria. What it does is it goes into the cell wall and it prevents the cell wall from forming correctly. As a result, the cell wall of bacteria in the presence of penicillin is structurally weak, and so they pop like a balloon. If you imagine like a, a balloon 
when the structure and integrity of the balloon is compromised, it pops. Yes. And the bacteria just do exactly the same thing. So the bacteria are under pressure, the cell wall is weak, and they explode. And that, in essence, is how antibiotics work. There are lots of antibiotics, as I said, that target the cell wall. There are other targets within the cell, in the bacterial cell, which are unique to bacteria. So as a result, the antibiotics have no effect. Mm -hmm by and large, on our cells. Right. And there are dozens and dozens of different types of antibiotics. Is that right? There's lots of different types of antibiotics. There are only a couple of target sites within a bacterial cell. Antibiotics, initially, I discovered they're produced by other microorganisms. Mm -hmm. So people may know that penicillin was discovered from a mold, from a fungus. Mm -hmm. And um, there are other antibiotics that have been discovered from other bacteria. And they produce it, of course, because the bacteria are producing antibiotics because they're in competition with other bacteria within the environment for space and nutrients, etc. Yeah. So there's like chemical warfare going on. So only very recently, within the evolutionary period of the world, as it has been, that mankind have used these antibiotics for their benefit. What has happened recently, and uh, not recently, but in the past, then clever chemists take the natural antibiotics and change them chemically, prolonging their usefulness and changing their characteristics. Or maybe they have a broader spectrum of activity or better pharmacokinetics within the body, you know, so maybe it'll last better in the body or penetrate into a body site better. Mm -hmm. That's what basically has been done in the past. Antibiotics have been discovered and we've changed their chemistry, prolonging their usefulness. Mm. The main problem, of course, that that discovery of antibiotics slow down well yeah let's let's come on to that yeah. so we've used antibiotics for around world war ii uh, there's a world war ii when we, were, when we were knowingly using antibiotics you can look back in history and ancient civilizations using things like garlic and honey which they used for treating wounds etc and only now we're realizing that those substances do actually have an antibacterial properties you know but only around world war ii we found chemicals right. and used them specifically knowingly that they treat uh, infections right. but we've been using things unknowingly for a very very long time yeah and we're going back and looking at those um compounds now trying to find new antibiotics a lot of research has been going on in cardiff with honey manuka honey especially we are creating and using more and more antibiotics more effective antibiotics but unlike i suppose viruses and immunizations you know, how we eradicated smallpox from the world, for example, bacteria don't go away, do they? Remember that bacteria have been using antibiotics to kill themselves, other bacteria, for millions of years. And so they're used, they're used to becoming resistant, because that's the game they've been playing for a while. So this is nothing new for the bacteria. And it's just um, a process of evolution, really. I remember a joke, if, say, a lion were to bust into this room, I don't have to outrun the lion, I just have to outrun you. (laughs) It's about adapting, and bacteria are very good at adapting. And fast Uh, as well. Very fast. Bacteria divide quickly, and so they're able to produce mutants within a population, and then those mutants can be selected for by the antibiotics. When we divide as human beings, we have to duplicate our genome, and that takes a long time. Mm-hmm. So imagine you had to copy an essay, for example, and you had a week to do it. The copy you would do would be pretty good, right? If you had to copy an essay in 10 minutes, and there might be a few typos in there. Yeah. In the genetic code, we would call those mutations. Yeah. So when you have a bacteria and it's dividing, all the daughter cells are not identical. There are mutants in there. 
those mutants have a price to pay because they might be not as fit as the others, so they might die and they might struggle to survive. That diversity means that when there's a change in the environment, the bacterial population can adapt to it quickly. Mm-hmm. So the change in the environment, you know, in humans could be that we start getting predated by lions, and we get and only those that can run fast get selected for. Yeah, like the film Zombieland. I don't know if you've seen the film Zombieland, but the first yes. rule of Zombieland yes. is, is cardio. <laughs> it's not a reference uh, I was expecting. Yes, yeah, so but uh, <laughs> I'm a big zombie fan, and and you know the first rule is cardio, and so. It selects for people who can run fast. And so that's the same thing that's happening in the bacterial population. When you use an antibiotic, it selects for those bacteria that have developed resistance. And as a result, you get the entire population then is that of resistant bacteria. But what bacteria can do as well that we can't is that they can transfer their DNA from one individual to another, what we call horizontal gene transfer. So we get our genetics from our parents and we pass it on to our children. Mm If we were bacteria, I could give you the gene for resistance just by transferring horizontally to you. And as a result of that, they adapt quickly. Yeah. Bacteria can adapt quickly and become resistant to antibiotics very quickly. So that has created a problem called antimicrobial resistance, isn't it? And that's basically what we've just outlined, is that the bacteria are mutating to become not consciously, but the mutant bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. Yeah, they do, they're, they're, just, they're just adapting. They want to survive. And we, as a human population, as, as a humanity, have used antibiotics extensively. I mean, if you think about it, all our modern healthcare is based on the use of antibiotics. Things yeah. like organ transplantation, cancer treatment, limb replacement with artificial knees etc all that stuff can happen because of the use of antibiotics well Uh, any sort of general surgery any invasive procedure you know Uh, there was a time where a cut on your finger could be a life or death situation giving birth could be a life and death situation and the use of antibiotics has meant that people surviving these these things and are able to survive you know very advanced invasive treatments when you're going into an intensive care ward in the hospital, you see all these patients with all these machines in them, keep them alive. But as a result, they're all susceptible to infection. And these patients can be kept alive with antibiotics and then hopefully kept alive to treat what they're, they're being treated for with all these invasive procedures. I saw David give a talk at a conference where he showed a video clip of bacteria on yeah, so jelly, what, wasn't it? Or that was, yeah, so that was agar. Um, agar. We, we commonly use agar as a, as a medium to grow bacteria in the lab. It was a big agar plate and it had no antibiotics in the agar on the periphery and it was getting more and more concentrated as, as it got into the centre. It was just a time-lapse video showing bacteria growing, coming up to the antibiotic and stopping mm-hmm. and then the mutation happened between in one bacteria and you can you saw that bacteria then just flourish Carry and spread yeah. into the new environment so i'll put a link to that video in the um, episode description of this podcast um, and i do really really recommend that you watch it not to frighten yourselves but just to be kind of aware of the problem that we're talking about and some of the steps that we as individuals can take to help combat this but i wanted to ask how do health organizations i suppose worldwide as well as the NHS in the UK, how do they combat this problem? That is the million-dollar question. Um, (laughs) I feel that it's important to remember that bacteria don't see boundaries. And so whatever we do, it has to be a worldwide response. That's the first thing. There are lots of things that we can do to help 
slow the progress of antimicrobial resistance and there's lots of people who need to be involved in that. So things like increasing public awareness of the issues, so or just this very podcast, for example, is something positive. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, about raising public awareness of the issue, so that patients, for example, don't demand antibiotics when they go see a doctor for a cough or a cold or something like that. Yeah, we don't want to misuse the use of antibiotics, and if we use a lot of antibiotics, then we're putting this great what, we, what evolutionary biologists would call a selection pressure mm. on the bacteria population. So we want to keep the use of antibiotic antibiotics down or within reasonable limits another thing we we need to do then worldwide is to improve hygiene and sanitation stopping people from getting sick in the first place yeah increasing vaccination rates and things like that we need to look at the use of antibiotics in agriculture they're used heavily in agriculture for various reasons which is not my area of expertise but i know that when they're used in agriculture again the antibiotics are getting into nature and, and that will have an impact on and obviously selecting bacteria for bacteria yeah for resistant bacteria within the environment mm. that bacteria can then come and infect us or the genes from the environment as i've said can be transferred to bacteria that infect us yeah so we need to look at that we need to look at maybe new technologies in my area for rapid diagnostics so maybe getting um the results and tests done much more quickly, uh, not in days, but in hours. Mm -hmm. And then really going on with the work that we do in the hospital is surveillance. Yeah. Surveillance is key, in my opinion, um, to maintaining the usefulness of antibiotics as long as possible and to reduce harm. I wanted to ask about that. So how does the work you do kind of inform this strategy? When a healthcare professional gives you an antibiotic, they don't pick an antibiotic out of thin air. They base that decision on guidelines, and they should be following guidelines, mm -hmm. local guidelines, saying for this type of infection, in the first instance, use this antibiotic. And those guidelines are based and should be based on good, solid evidence. So things that we know that if you use this antibiotic in the past, it's really worked well, and experts decide that. Yeah, And so... What we do, what I think is really important in surveillance, is that we look at the type of infections, we sample them, we see what the bacteria are causing the infections, what the antibiotics they're susceptible to. So that gives us a body of data that we can be used to review the guidelines when they come up for review. I'm always uh, remembering my driving instructor when I was learning to drive long ago, and he always told me to look, look ahead, and the best time to see a problem is in the distance. So you have time to do something about it. Yeah. Obviously, when you're driving, it's slowing down or stopping. But with surveillance, what it is, is we're looking ahead and we can see in the distance maybe some issue developing with resistance. And so we have the time to maybe suggest to doctors, okay, maybe maybe prescribe another antibiotic here or something like that. Mm -hmm. What I don't want to see is patients all of a sudden not getting optimum treatment and coming back on review once their infections have not been resolving properly mm. you know and all of a sudden we think oh wow there's a big resistance problem here sneaked up but that's always a surprise to us you know i mean that's fascinating and obviously the work that you and your colleagues and counterparts around the world is doing is ensuring that people can live healthy lives we're not afraid of infection mm. from cuts and scrapes and stuff like that we can have surgery we're living longer what would happen if we were to just stop and everyone was like right just prescribe any old antibiotic kind of worst case scenario 
it'd be really scary. I mean, it's really scary now if you if you stop and think about it. Very soon, I, I don't want to say a timeline, but if everybody was prescribing any antibiotic willy-nilly, or there are some places in the world where you can get antibiotics without a prescription, so it is happening in some places in yeah. the world, which is really scary. And those are the areas of the world where we're finding highly resistant, multi-drug resistant bacteria. That situation where superbugs are common will be a common place in this country if we started down that path mm-hmm. and then you know life expectancy will drop and infectious disease people dying from infections non-treatable infections would be the number one cause of death in the country uh, at the moment it's cancer yeah. but in a recent government report or needle report 2016 they said if antimicrobial resistance rates carry on the way they are then by 2020 it'll be the number one killer infectious diseases by antimicrobial resistance wow it's a scary situation now really and um, there's a lot of work in healthcare to really combat this now all we can do at the moment is maintain the usefulness of our antibiotics that we currently have yeah hope that new antibiotics are coming in the pipeline but it takes a long time it costs a lot of money the key battleground at the moment is surveillance so we're look we're we're looking at a, a bug and we say, right, okay, we've been giving this, this antibiotic to treat it. Resistance is raising, right, so let's give it this other antibiotic now. Yeah. Keep that going until another answer presents itself. Nanotechnology or something, like mi- yeah. miniature robots that can go inside the <laughs> body to kill bacteria. Something like that. That hasn't happened yet, but, you know. Could happen in It could times. happen in a space. What a film. Because we're using chemicals to kill bacteria, and this is nothing new to the bacteria. This is what they do. If any scientist out there finds a different tack, then I'm sure they'll win the Nobel Prize for it. It's a big problem, and um, there's a big drive within the research community to find that answer. Yes, yeah, I can imagine. Well, in the UK, obviously, we rely so heavily on the NHS and the research organisations within and around the NHS to keep us healthy and well from problems like bacteria. But are there any actions that individuals can take to help? So you mentioned for example, not going to your GP and demanding that you get antibiotics if you have like a cough. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be the main one. Is it? Uh, yeah, that would be the main one. Um, you know, following the guidelines. So when if you do get antibiotics, that you take them as the doctor recommends. Yeah. Uh, you don't store them and just give them out to your members of family. Yeah. Like, oh, I might store this penicillin, I might give it to somebody else. <laughs> just take them yourselves as the, yeah. as the doctor recommends. Get vaccinated. There's a big debate in the country at the moment with vaccinations. Yeah. I think Wales has just lost, or the UK has just lost this measles free yes. uh, status, this, which yeah, is, you this know. This week, mid August yeah. 2019, uh, yeah, we've just lost measles free. Yeah, status. so in my opinion, that's a very sad thing. So vaccinations are very important. On another note, I would say, you know, don't be afraid of getting your hands dirty in the environment as well. It's important that uh, you get your kids out there and playing in the mud and stuff like that to build up their immune systems. You know? Yeah, so we have um, our own kind of antibacterial resistance. As, as I mentioned, you know, the, the good bacteria that's out there, the bacteria don't cause us harm. You know, the, the bac- as you're developing as a youngster, educates your immune system and gets it ready for the big bad world. So don't keep your kids wrapped up in cotton wool, get mm. their hands dirty, build up their immune systems, I would say. Easy steps that everyone can take, really, but it would contribute, if everyone did it, I'm sure it would contribute hugely. To As the, I said, um, it's a global effort, um, yeah. this thing, and everybody has to has to do their part in trying to combat this big problem. That was really fascinating, David. Thank you so much.
Thanks again to David Thomas there, biomedical scientist at the University Dental Hospital for Wales. What a fascinating discussion. I never really knew how much work goes into keeping the mutations of bacteria at bay and all the work in surveillance and future work that can go on that David mentions with nanotechnology and all that sort of stuff that that we may see in our lifetimes. Hope you caught the references to both Zombieland and Inner Space. I think David and I are kindred spirits as far as films go. And don't forget this winter, if you have a cough or a cold, please don't ask your GP or pharmacist to prescribe you antibiotics because they simply won't work and they just make the problem that much more likely. If you have antibiotics at home and you've taken half a course and you've thought, oh, I'll keep the rest of them, just throw them away. Don't save them for the rest of your family. Only take medicine that you've been prescribed yourself and when you're taking it, follow the instructions. It's as simple as that. If you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, or someone that you'd like us to interview, please get in touch. You can contact me by emailing news at wales.nhs.uk or via social media. I'm on Twitter at cv underscore uhb or on Facebook at Cardiff and Vale UHB. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast where you can. And why not leave a review? It'll just help us to reach that many more people and spread the good word about the NHS. Until next time, I've been Bryn Kentish and this was How Healthcare Happens.